This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Protecting Your Scully. Edward Jones. The Witch's Tree. And Spring Hill Jack. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive once more welcome us into the gaming hut. But instead of the auto-tune stylings of Peter Frampton, it's the slow, creepy burn of Mark Snow because we're listening to the X-Files music. da 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 etc., etc. Listen to it in your own head, people. I've, I've got better things to do. Yeah, uh, if, it was, because... if it was hummed better than that, we'd have to pay clearance. So. Exactly. And that's what I'm doing. I'm saving us from paying clearance. You're welcome, everyone. But the reason we're mentioning Mark Snow is because we're talking, by and large, about the Scully problem. And the Scully problem is, if you want to play a supernatural horror game... Uh, the uh, example that I believe m- many people still have in their hearts, although now Supernatural has perhaps passed it by in the, in the meme Olympics, is the good old X-Files, in which we have Mulder the Believer and Scully the Skeptic, played memorably, of course, by the lovely and talented Jillian Anderson, and someone might say, I want to play a Scully, I want to be a, what we like to call, normal person who doesn't believe in any of this nonsense, and perhaps enjoy that as part of play, but, of course... Uh, the X-Files can do writing and it can arrange that Scully's character is never right there when the ghost is and all the other uh, narrative tricks that are available when someone controls every aspect of the story. You can't really do that in a role-playing game. So how, Robin, can we allow Scully into our horror game? Right. So uh, as you suggest, uh, what the writers do in the early seasons of X-Files anyway, and they're not able to you know, keep no. it going over the vast giant arc of that show because after a while it collapses under its own weight, but they protect Scully's skepticism by writing it as you suggest so that, uh, she doesn't quite see the same things that, uh, that Mulder does. And then later on, what they finally do is, well, we've seen some real weird things that I can't deny, but that doesn't mean your crazy theory in this instance, Mulder, 
is necessarily the case. Which uh, and is, sometimes which is still warranted, I think. That, yes. that that's a that's a that's a perfectly good Scully fallback for your character. You can still say, you know, we, we want to be Sherlock Holmes. We want to say when the impossible has been eliminated. Once we're sure that it can't have been Old Man Withers and a glow in the dark mask, then we think it's a ghost. Right. But uh, that is often not what players, in my experience, want to play when they choose to play the skeptic. And I run a lot of horror games. Yeah. And although it's true that I've had a similar crew of players over the, you know, where people have filtered in and filtered out over the years, but that, uh, you know, many of them have been playing for years. But every horror game, somebody, if not a couple of somebody's, wants to start out with that stance of being the skeptic. Now, is that just because they're engaging in juvenile premise threat for the sake of engaging in juvenile premise threat, Robin? Or is that a, a thing that they believe will actually improve the story for everyone? Um, I think it is a bunch, uh, it is a series of different things. And it is about a third of the time <laughs> a recognition that the genre always has a skeptical character. So they might as well play it. They might as well play right? it. Uh, to, uh, enjoyment of the tension between what is going on obviously in the game and their characters. So they're setting up a conflict for their character mm -hmm. and also three, what you mentioned. Yeah, juvenile <laughs> premise threat. Um, and, and because that's the thing that you have to, I mean, with any sort of play that looks like it's against the tropes of the, of the genre or the tropes of the game, even though the game's not a genre, you have to ask, are you playing the musketeer who is unmoved by love because you are a jerk? Or are you playing the musketeer who is unmoved by love because that is his secret pain that we must explore in exciting role play, right? And and so uh, are you playing the scully in a horror game because you're a jerk or because, as you said, one of the other two reasons that you said. Right, and, and I came up with a fourth of my three reasons. A fourth the of fourth three of my reasons. three reasons is that I think people in a horror game want to cooperate with the destruction of their characters so that they enjoy playing something that will lead them to failure. And this is not the only example of that that my players have embraced recently as I continue to play the Yellow King role-playing game. They're all putting on their nightgowns and going down into the crypt alone barefoot with a candle. Exactly. Which, uh, so let's assume for the rest of this that they are not wrecking play. Right. No, this is how to do it well as opposed to how to do it how to encourage someone to be a jerk because right. we don't so believe in that. So it's not preventing game. them from going on and uh, continuing with the investigation and doing things and being interesting. It's not causing right. them to go, oh, this is all nonsense. My character is just going to go sit at home, mm -hmm. right? That's annoying, bad premise rejection where this just creates sort of a fun sense of byplay as, you know, the character is going down into the basement that's slowly filling up with blood going, oh, well, this is a really weird marketing campaign, yeah, right. uh, right. which is the d delusion of choice for one of the characters currently to explain what is going on in the uh, in the Yellow King game. Is it's all well, you're a big all, ARG. You're, you're in, um, uh, uh, this used to be this is normal now, right? You're in the yes. modern era when it could be a weird marketing campaign. Yes. And in and, fact, and, you and, and I have seen marketing, marketing campaigns in this world where we're thinking, could that be a King in Yellow eruption? Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, so, uh, what can you do? Can you actually, and generally, what I, uh, do is I just let them walk into that buzzsaw. That, right, yeah. You know, it's up to them to sustain that skepticism for as long as they possibly can. And then they can either continue to insist it's a marketing campaign, meaning they are playing themselves crazier than the system says they are. So they don't necessarily have a shock card that says, you think it's all a marketing campaign minus one on focus t tests. They're just playing it that way, which is great and fun in their choice. Um, but can you, in fact, help to engineer the events in your game 
in order to make sure that that character sees things that make it seem to him like a marketing campaign. Is that too many uh, balls to have in the air that you're juggling as you're trying to run an investigative scenario with all of its complexities? Or is it something that you can remember to throw in a little bone to? Uh, And part of that can be you can have a... So let's start coming up with ways to do that. Uh, One of the ways to do that, I guess, is just description, that you can describe things slightly differently to to that character. If that character is, in fact, in your universe, deluded to think that it's a marketing campaign, you can say, well, you think for a moment that you see a flash of green screen. And so the that gives the player the opportunity to go, oh, this is special effects. Whereas what's really going on in your uh, reality of the game is that the character is uh, bugging out and that they're perceptual system is compensating in order to try and maintain their grip on reality by giving them false information that suggests that the supernatural events are not happening. Uh, What's another uh, way that we could uh, try and make this uh, work at least for a little while longer in a game? Well, there's a, there's a mechanic that's actually in trail of Cthulhu and the upcoming fall of Delta green available for pre-order now uh, that uh, allows you to basically play denial where if there's no proof afterward uh, that any of this happened, you can just deny that it ever happened. You just forget it. Your your mind shuts down and refuses to process. And you either don't know what happened in that crypt or you've made up another story. You just say, I hit my head and had a crazy hallucination or whatever it is. But you can mechanically not suffer the, you know, uh, the impact of the sanity uh, and or stability loss because you, it never happened to you. You never saw it. There's no proof. It never happened. I cut my arm on the side of the crypt when I was opening it. That's got nothing to do with any claw monster that you may or may not have seen. Right. So and that's a, a good thing because then, of course, once that wall comes down, then the player character gets to go crazy all at once. And so what you can do in, in any game, whether it has that mechanic or not, is you can then say to the player, well, how did you rationalize the events of last week's session? And mm-hmm. they can then uh, either give you an answer to, oh, I, you know, I, I, that just confirmed in my mind that it was a marketing campaign. Uh, or you can say, well, I am finally starting to have doubts so that you are not telling the player what the player is perceiving, but you are giving the player the opportunity to continue this element of their character uh, as long as they care to keep it up. Another way to do it, of course, is to actually run change up. If you're running a episodic game or a picaresque game, you can, in fact, have the occasional scenario where it is, in fact, old man withers or it is, in fact, crooks with a submarine and some luminous paint. And it's not the Loch Ness Monster. And you can run the occasional one where, oh, look, the skeptic was right. And that little bit of reinforcement allows the skeptical character to chew on that over and over and over for for many more hauntings or or alien attacks or whatever happens normally in your game. Because, hey, one time it was, in fact, a bunch of local toughs. It wasn't a werewolf. And now look, because in a world where werewolves are sort of accepted, it makes sense that people would fake a supernatural attack just as uh uh Colonel Lansdale did in the Philippines when he faked vampire attacks to terrify the Huck. Uh the Ku Klux Klan in the eighteen seventies would dress I mean that's part of why they wore the white hoods is to dress up as ghosts so that when black people would come and report the attack they would say, Oh, you just saw ghosts, you crazy people. Uh you probably burned your own house down because you're drunk uh, layabouts. And that's uh and that was deliberately part of the approach was to spread terror uh, by spreading supernatural terror. And one can imagine. Right. And then gaslighting a, on top of that. 
Right. And then, then in a world where the, where the membrane between supernatural and natural is thinner, such as in a role playing game world, there might be more cases of people faking supernatural events. So it might actually be useful to have a skeptic there because the last thing you want to do is bring silver bullets to a real gunfight. Yeah. And then that takes us to, I think, what is its own segment, uh, which is <laughs> oh, no. uh, whether the group will be disappointed to have a Cthulhu scenario that turns out to be property developers in rubber masks and how you, you know, how you make that reveal satisfying. Uh, because, uh, you know, certainly, uh, as, as a young genre fan, when I, uh, when I, whenever a ghost story turned out to be, you know, a, a guy in a curtain, that was always very disappointing. So you have to, uh, like, you know, put a pin in that and how to, how to do that well as its own separate thing. But you can also have a subtitle. Uh, yeah, because I, I have, a, I, have a, I have a bunch of ideas on how to make that satisfying. So yeah, I think that is its own segment. Right. Another thing you can do though in the, in the course of this is have a follow-up situation where somebody approaches the, uh, character who's losing their skepticism and does a skepticism reset and gives, gives supplies a rational explanation, uh, which seems credible, uh, at least credible enough for someone who wishes to, uh, believe in not believing. Right. And that could be like a man in black or it could be like a Carl Sagan guy. He right. shows up in his turtleneck from the planetarium and says, oh, did you see the mysterious ball lightning in the sky? That was crazy, that ball lightning. Fortunately, we've observed that from this planetarium over the last 45 years, and here's all the documents. And you're like, oh, I guess that wasn't UFOs, and I was not abducted. Yeah, and uh, here's here's all the uh, uh, studies on hypnagogic states, and we've, uh, or, you know, or there's a cell phone tower that was going uh, uh screwy near you and it interfered with a bunch of people's sleep patterns and and so forth whatever the you know the details are you can have someone come along and reinforce their skepticism for them which is i think is something that they actually do on the x-files a couple of times right where, uh Scully and, and is, although usually it's the it's the um you know man in black that is uh, doing a very bad job of warning Mulder away uh that does the reinforcement it's often scully acts as her own reinforcement because she knows you don't have to pay a third actor to have Scully say, well, Mulder, uh, people who are allergic to bees often just die for no reason if a bee stings them. Right. So but I think there's a couple of times where the cigarette smoking man stages a successful veil out, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. And, and that's something I think we can move into things the GM can do to actually help out the skeptical character. And part of it is, as you suggest, just, you know. Uh, the old, you know, you're in the part of the house that isn't haunted. The haunt is with the other characters when they've split the party. Or you can do, as you say, give them different information, different sensory feedback. And you can also, uh, allow the skeptical character to uncover evidence that points towards one explanation while the characters are uncovering evidence that points toward another. And you can also present the horror in many cases. If horrors move through nightmare, like Cthulhu does, or like uh, some vampires do, or the horror uh, creates a hypnagogic state in you uh, because it's like a mandrake or a, or, or some kind of uh, evil hypnotist or a ghost, then the characters may not know what they actually experienced, what they actually dreamed, what they were hypnotized into believing by a monster, because none of it feels particularly real. And you, as the GM, can feed that very easily with a lot of, well, you don't know. And, oh, this room suddenly turned into another room. And, of course, in the haunted house, it could be the ghost can teleport you. But in another, that's just a dream. That's how dreams work. And you never explain. There's not like a uh, – they don't have like a trivet like in Inception that they can spin on the table to find out if they're dreaming or not. Or if they are, you know, they start spinning it and the werewolf knocks it over. And now we don't know if it would have fallen. Right. And so I guess the Uber answer is just think while you're – 
uh, creating or improvising your scenario, what is the logical explanation that a debunker would go to, and how do I fit in an indication or two that possibly this, in fact, uh, fits that narrative as well? And so all you have to do is, uh, you know, look up your uh, skeptical inquirer and figure out what their explanation is mm-hmm. for uh, lycanthropy or uh, lights in the sky or... Uh, yeah, I think you there's know, a Skeptopedia online. Yeah, and and that would be sort of a fun thing to do is to actually just go through that, find an entry, find the skeptical explanation, and then work backwards into the, <laughs> you know, what is the yellow sign or Cthulhu reason uh, that these guys are totally wrong. Uh, well, and on uh, on that note, which I think was somewhat conclusive, uh, we will uh, cover ourselves <laughs> with uh, bear grease and head on through this commercial and see uh, what palatial excitement waits on the other side. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of terror town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pulgrain Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In In Cthulhu Cthulhu City. So the stovepipe hats, the horse-drawn carriages, and the... Film crew uh, shooting a costume drama over in the corner tell us that we've once more entered the chronicling confines of the history ad. And this time, Patreon backer Andy (laughs) Young poses the following. What was young Edward Jones up to when he kept breaking into Buckingham Palace during the 1830s? And what was he up to when he wasn't? So, Ken, uh, this story begins uh, on December 14th, 1838, a young 14-year-old uh, fellow who would soon be known as... Uh, was it, uh, it was Boy Jones. He was later the dubbed. The Boy Jones. The Boy Jones was uh, nabbed inside a Buckingham Palace. This is the early uh, in the reign of Queen Victoria. She was uh, soon to marry Albert. She was if, a uh, slip of a girl of 19. She's not the pop-eyed, weird-looking grandmother that you are now picturing when you think of Queen Victoria. She's a pop-eyed, weird-looking young woman. She's a, she's a gorgeous former Doctor Who companion. Yeah, sure. <laughs> gorgeous, maybe. You know, when you realize she's going to be the empress of a third of the world, she does take on a certain gorgeousness, sure. But there you go. she's, 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 she's beautiful and, 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 uh, and smooth of skin and slim of limb and, and, and a lovely figure to be reverenced by all true Britons, I'm sure. Yes. I, the last thing I need is Les Majesty claims leveled against me now. Right. So, so anyway, this, uh, this 14 year old, uh, is caught. Uh, he doesn't get as far as actually uh, laying eyes on Queen Victoria, but he's found in Buckingham Palace 
with a sword, a linen, uh, a purloined letter. He's seen in the palace and chased out of the palace and tackled. And uh, I'm just going to cut to the chase as to what the real story uh, might have been. He was also found with several pairs of the Queen's bloomers. So um, <laughs> so if you want your rational explanation of what's going on, uh, there's not much we have to infer to figure out this mystery. And, and in... And in fact, Edward, uh, John Bondison, who is a great, uh, historian of the odd, if not the overtly weird, uh, and sort of, you know, let the cat out of the bag. His book on the topic is called Queen Victoria's Stalker, The Strange Case of the Boy Jones, which I do not own, but I would proudly own it if I ran across it in a store. Right. Uh, well, um, next time you find it, Jane Bonnison is is the is the bomb. He's great. Yes. Yes. And, and I guess the other thing that gives, uh, his story a sort of a, a cast of the eerie or, or weird or makes him available for, for this, uh, treatment on our podcast is that he's a remarkably ugly young dude. People who are perhaps even inclined to, to uh, be on his side, the sort of the, the anti-royalist penny press, Charles Dickens, they all say, yeah, this guy's not a good looking kid at all. And he first breaks in when he's 14 and he gets off. Uh, because it's sort of cute and there's, it's not actually a crime to break into Buckingham Palace, which is amazing to me. You have to have a civil suit, uh, again, and the royal family's like, we're not going to sue a 14 year old Taylor's kid who has no money. That's terrible. Um, and it was not a crime. You could just apparently break into Buckingham Palace and roll around in your filth and everyone was now, cool with it. With and it, then it, he broke it, in again when he was normally 17. it's illegal to break into homes at, by 1838. Is there an exemption for Buckingham Palace? I, I, I think maybe because Buckingham Palace is like the property of the crown and not the property of a person. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, because there would have to be a, like a stated exemption, right? That's No, but they but they literally, they could not try. They didn't try him for burglary. They tried him for being a vagabond and a hobo. Um, and he got off on basically that. And then they tried him again for being a vagabond and a hobo. But they tried him in Privy Council, uh, where he didn't have all those stupid rights and lawyers. And they uh, just chunked him into a prison. And then they he got out of that prison and immediately broke into Buckingham Palace again. And they tried him again. And this time they sent him to hard labor. And he broke out of uh, – and, and when he got out of that, guess where he went? I know. You, you've already guessed. Buckingham Palace. And then they say, we're just going to Shanghai you. And so the Royal Navy puts him on a civilian ship, the Tiber, that is on its way to Brazil and says, yes. well – that's Speaking the last of we're things that aren't illegal, yes. <laughs> we're gonna pick you up and put you <laughs> yeah, on a ship. Right. Uh, you, you, you know, operate outside the law, get sh- uh, Shanghai outside the law. So, of course, when the boat gets back from Brazil, who walks off it? But young, better at climbing things, Edward Jones, who then heads for the palace. They they nab him this time outside the palace, and they impress him forcibly into the Royal Navy, put him on the HMS Warspite, and send him to the Mediterranean, and he's transferred. Um, he deserts from the war spite and attempts again to walk to, um, uh, to, uh, Buckingham Palace from Portsmouth, is grabbed, put back on the war spite, and then the war spite is just, before they go back to London, they transfer him to another ship in Malta so that he can't go pester Her Majesty anymore. And eventually, they finally just dump him in Perth, Australia, the most godforsaken place they can imagine. And somehow he makes his way back from Perth, but by then he's just getting too old to be breaking into places. The, he originally uh, said that he had broken and lived there for a year, and they proved that that was wrong. And as you intimated, the way that he broke in at least one time was to slather himself with bear grease and eel through a sort of a crack in the doorway. 
uh, the gateway. And then another time he just climbed in an upstairs window, which wasn't locked because apparently no one in the 19th century had the faintest idea of personal security. Um, uh, I'm looking at you, Abraham Lincoln. And then they, they moved on, uh, sort of, he didn't try to get into uh, Buckingham Palace after coming back from Australia the first time, but he had a relative who was in Melbourne who said, I'm rich and in Melbourne and I will uh, take care of you if you just come to Melbourne and live with me and don't risk getting everyone in trouble and getting the family further become a hissing and a byword. And, and so he went back to Australia where he died uh, when he fell on a piece of rock. Right. Now, if this was at the end of the show and this was Ken's time machine, this is where you would reveal that, uh, in fact, he was a rival time agent, Alfred E. Newman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because that is, in fact, what he looks like. He also looks a little like uh, Anthony Hopkins' ventriloquist dummy from Magic, but but that would be crazy. Yes, but that is insane. Uh, we know that, in fact, he was uh, just a, a, a filthy mudlark um, with a weird ability to get into Buckingham Palace. And I think if you're if you're looking for maybe a if, if you're looking for a, a magical explanation, what has happened is that someone in Buckingham Palace, and I'm not naming names, but I'm going to say probably some immortal ghoul-like equerry who's been drinking from the blood of the Glamis Monster Castle or something, someone's moon beast type guy, went out, had a kid in London who was a, a filthy homunculus like this kid, and then the homunculus is just drawn like a salmon back to Buckingham Palace, that that's like his spawning ground because his filthy moon beast uh, dad um, uh, works there and is connected to Buckingham Palace because he's connected like a parasite, like a lamprey to the royal family. That's my theory. Uh, similarly, we could look into the possibility that he's a changeling uh, based on right. his goblin-like appearance so that uh, there was, you know, some past uh, royal uh, uh, offspring uh, not necessarily in the in the direct line of succession, but uh, enough that they would be drawn to Buckingham Palace uh, that, uh, that was uh, swapped uh, out for uh, a, a a goblin and the the actual and probably since it was a illegitimate the uh, the swap was made intentionally and the the real kid was sent to Fairyland and uh, it's like well you got to look after this goblin and then something happens and uh, the uh, minor royal in question. Uh, either, uh, you know, dies or uh, just decides not to have this horrible leering goblin around and uh, <laughs> puts him out on the street. And, of course, then he uh, the, the whole salmon-like thing uh, comes back into play. The, 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 possible there, the possibility there is that he might be, um, uh, have swapped, been swapped out for uh, one of the uh, uh, illegitimate children or one of the uh, sadly died in infancy or stillborn children of William IV, who was king before Queen Victoria, so that he's a changeling who sort of believes that he should be king. And because he was sitting on the throne at one point during his uh, mudlarking escapades. Uh, right. Or this may, in fact, be, uh, you know, he is a goblin who's been uh, outcast from the land, realm of fairy, but he is his real claim is to uh, the throne of Oberon, right? That he wants to take over fairyland. And in order to do that, he needs to, uh, complete this act of sympathetic magic by going into uh, the most important human palace that he can again mm -hmm. and again and again. And uh, he uh, he does it, what, three times? And three then, times that we know about. I mean, given the, the state of security, he could have done it a million times. Right. But, but three is a magic number, so we right, can say yeah. that. And so uh, then what has happened is that the... Uh, you know, Oberon's uh, agents in the in the human world have seen to it that he winds up on a boat, and uh, the 
where this becomes a scenario is you may in fact be uh, you know, those agents, you may be working for Titani and Oberon and your job is to, uh, you know, get this kid, uh, onto a boat. And, uh, then the hijinks ensue because of course he's, uh, he's a, a skilled escaper. Then, then the hijinks ensue. Uh, another possibility in addition to being a moon beast, a, a moon child, a goblin or a fairy is that he could be um a, a construct. He could be a homunculus that was built by some magician who lived out in crummy, uh, rotten people, London, and he built the homunculus to s- to snarl his way into Buckingham Palace to steal some magic goodies that he needs for his uh, magic, and that that's why he's he's a filthy, horrible, misshapen, uh, big-headed lump is that he's built that way because the homunculus guy is not a sculptor; he's a magician. So that's what he is. And that's why he can sort of oil into things is because he can sort of break down his body into the mud and slime from which it is built and sort of uh, through things. Uh, right. And so the next possibility is uh, 1838 is uh, uh, not so long after 1818. So uh, this could be the uh, previously unknown spawn of Frankenstein's monster and the Bride of Frankenstein. This could be uh, a uh, hideous uh, undead child brought to us uh, not by magic, but by uh, corpse-reviving science. By the darkest of science. Yes, exactly. Uh, he has become aware of the uh, British government's uh, secret funding of this obviously destabilizing uh, project, which was undoubtedly meant to uh, uh, cause chaos in Germany. And so uh, he has decided to uh, uh, wreak his revenge, but as a sort of a reanimated un- undead uh, scion, uh, you know, his marbles are not quite in order and he never quite uh, figures out exactly what he's uh, doing. The other uh, possibility is that he has, uh, you know, some sort of mission to do with Charles Dickens, right? That, that uh, Whether he's a homunculus or a uh, goblin or, or what have you, that really this is all about uh, meeting Charles Dickens in order to achieve some uh, magical or uh, conspiratorial aim. Right. That it's that, that that's basically a way to trail his coat so that Charles Dickens makes contact with him. Um, and uh, I think that we can also uh, perhaps imply that whatever he is, um, his, the, 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 the uh, Royal authorities know that his power is constrained by seawater. And that's why they keep trying to put him on boats. Is um is and that might be a homunculus that might be a a fairy that might be any kind of a thing and that that's why they finally hit on the notion once they figure out what he is of of popping him on a boat um instead of just putting him on a land prison which doesn't do anything right uh well uh so if a uh, grinning Alfred E Newman looking goblin or uh, undead spawn uh, shows up in your door uh, you know take him to the marina put him on a boat and yep. uh, get rid of him that way or take him to meet Charles Dickens. Right. Uh, well, th- that's easily enough done. Uh, so uh, on that n- note of service journalism, let's conclude this segment and move on through to the next.
Do you love beautiful, evocative fantasy maps redolent of medieval Italy? In sales technique, we call that an invitation for the listener to say yes. Because the latest Ask the Gown Kickstarter has what you seek. The Summerland City Map Project. Navigate Joe Dever's World of Magnamund, the setting for the Lone Wolf game books. Made by cartographer Francesco Mattioli in close collaboration with Joe. And with Vincent Lazzari, devoted keeper of the Lone Wolf Flame. Born of Francesco's dream of creating city maps celebrating Lone Wolf and medieval Bologna. Are you saying that he based them on Earth? That's a yes, sayer of the saying, base it on Earth. Why, then, even if Lone Wolf is not your deal, you could use these stunning maps as a resource for any medieval or fantasy setting. You could not have said it better yourself. Choose between a single map of Holmgard or the collection of all ten maps. Follow the link in the show notes to the Summerlin City Map Kickstarter. Maintain a healthy skepticism alongside such backers as... Miko Iraxinen. Andrew Collins. Anton Kulikoff. And Trung Boy. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Lieutenant Colonel Andy Bates, Patreon backer, asks Ken and Robin for an RPG scenario set in 1889 to 1890 about the witch's tree in Louisville and the curse of the witches causing a deadly 1890 tornado according to the legend. What other historical trends and events should a GM consider? What plot elements should a GM consider or avoid, particularly if I want to avoid offending the tree and getting tornadoed to death? This creepy-ass tree is on my block! And uh, I met uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andy Bates when I went to Louisville. He did not take me to see his hideous witch's tree, for which I think <laughs> I thank him, because uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, but oh my goodness, is that a witch tree? That is the witchiest of trees. Um, uh, it's not a good tree. It, it's, it's gnarled does not begin to no, uh, describe bulbous, it. If you looked at that, you would think Guillermo del Toro built that tree for a particularly uh, heavy-handed scene in a in a Lovecraft movie. That's what it's. That's what that tree is. Definitely an Arthur Rackham tree for sure. Yeah, it is not a proper tree by and, any stretch and not a maple. Of the uh, because the story is that the. Uh, uh, in uh, 1889, the city fathers uh, saw this lovely maple and they decided this will be the maple that we will cut down for our uh, May celebrations. And the local witches said, hey, that's our tree. Don't you go be using it as the Axis Monday in your thing, especially not because you're going to cu- cut it down. Uh, don't do that. Um, and so we have to imagine a meeting in which, you know, it's just regular for witches to show up and warn Alderman not to do things. I don't know if they showed up at the city council meeting so much. Maybe they showed up like at the alderman's houses at night and said something like that. Yes. Cut down that, cut down our maple tree and beware a revenge. Beware the 11th month. Right. Or they showed up at the city council meetings and I other, think they did that other too. citizens rambled too long. They to sit there quietly while people are saying, well, I think that we should probably make the streetcar fares free to women because, oh. Yeah, the witches are sitting in the back going, everybody at this meeting is a crank. What's going on here? <laughs> God, this is insane. It's a good thing we're normal. We're normal with our tree, <laughs> the, our tree demand. The wart of the wart of toad. Uh, but anyway, as, as curse stories go, you're all ahead of us, folks, because, of course, the tree does get cut down. And this other tree grows in its place. It's clearly not a maple from the, tree. from the pictures. Um, now, I do not have Shazam for trees, so I'm not sure what, 
What from the photos? What kind of like an ash? Maybe I don't know. Uh, it's it, it's awful. Is is yeah. what kind it is? It is literally an awful tree. It is, and an I'm awful sure tree. Uh, science people. This is where if we had Ken and Robin talk about stuff, and Darcy yells, "What about a kind of derms that background?" We could make her look at this tree. But I'm sure someone, one of our many commenters, will look at the picture and say, "Why, that's just the Louisville uh, tumor tree. We see those all the time." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just a tumor tree. Nothing. That. Nothing weird about that. Um, yeah. So the question is, Andy knows all about the tree, and he needs to know what else goes into the story or what sort of significance there can be of the tree. Because, of course, the story is that the uh, deadly tornadoes, a storm came in March 27th in 1890 and uh, destroyed multiple buildings and kind of swathed to, through the town. It uh, collapsed a public building where children were learning to dance. A hundred people died and many more were injured. And so uh, these are some powerful witches. Yeah, they did not mess around. There were, they the, the tornadoes that they summoned up was one of 24 tornadoes that blew through the whole Midwest through like five states. Um, uh, at least, I think at least seven or eight were F4 tornadoes, Force 4 uh, tornadoes. Uh, the one that went through Louisville just went absolutely right across town. It came in in the southwest and moved to the northeast, crossed the Ohio River, thought better of it, turned around and came back to uh, blow up the water tower as well. Um, it, it, it knocked down, as as you point out, the, the Falls City Hall, which was a gathering place uh, for uh, people who were uh, downstairs learning to dance and upstairs having a, a an improving meeting of some kind, uh, killing uh, at least 55 people and probably more. Um, just the, if the pictures of Louisville after the tornado are serious, this is not, I grew up in Oklahoma city, which is tornado central. And every so often you'd get a tornado that would be a real deal and, and really tear it up. But between Doppler radar and the rest of it, the tornado is, is not as God awful as it was in 1890. And in 1890, uh, this was a God awful tornado. This would be a God awful tornado now if it came through Louisville. Uh, right. So we want to look around, see what else is in the, in the neighborhood and in the timeline. And, uh, one thing that's in the neighborhood is there is, uh, your classic, uh, sort of, uh, late Victorian castle like structure. Um, many cities, including, uh, Toronto, uh, have, uh, one of them, but this one, is now called the Conrad Caldwell House. It's a, a museum now, uh, and it was a, it's a fine example of Romanesque uh, architecture and a big limestone edifice that looks beautiful during the daytime as, as a museum, but no doubt looks creepy at night. It is uh, no supposedly doubt. covered in gargoyles, although I didn't see any gargoyles in any of the uh, lovely photographs uh, of it, so maybe they're, you know, Invisible gargoyles. We may have to, in our version of this, as you describe it, you know, we may have to add a few Rackham slash Del Toro gargoyles onto that. Um, that was built by a guy named Theophil Conrad, who was, uh, a, uh, born in France. So we could, uh, you know, add a bit of yellow king to that if we wanted. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, he was, uh, the son of a glue manufacturer who uh, rose from being an apprentice to having a tanning uh, empire in uh, in Louisville, and uh, uh, then he went into real estate, and he remembered the great uh, European manners of his youth, and uh, was brought up in a building with a moat around it, and so he wanted to build this house, and that's uh, just a few years after the uh, the tree is cut down, and uh, so you might envision perhaps that this uh, man of great wealth had something to do with the cutting down of the tree and that this was uh, a necessary... Because he was a leading citizen who wanted to have a maypole? 
perhaps. He wanted to have a maypole or the original witch tree he thought was, uh, you don't want to build your manor right near a witch tree. That's, that's arch- that's, you know, real estate 101. He was a real estate magnet. He, right, location, yeah. location, location. Don't pick one uh, place near a witch tree. No witch trees, no witch trees, no witch trees. Right. But of course, that came back on him and the even worse tree uh, grew uh, in its place. So the uh, even witchier tree. Yeah. So obviously you're, you're missing a step. If some of this scenario does not happen in the Conrad Caldwell house, what else did you find? You can sort of just keep in mind that this is Kentucky. This is in uh, the border South the, in the 1890 is not the particular high water mark of the clan, but not very far away in, um, uh, I want to say Owensville, there was basically the murder of a U.S. Marshal named Bill Russell by the Klan, and the whole town just covered it up because they were all Klan. And so you already have weird, hideous conspiracies that move around at night and do evil. And you don't even need witches for that. You've got the Klan going on in, um, uh, in Kentucky. That was in 1875, so it's in living memory, certainly, for an 1889 scenario. And those people are still going to be around. Their kids are still going to be around. That Social structure is still going to be around. In 1900, in fact, the Democratic Party is so eager to maintain its control over Kentucky that it attempts to overthrow the Republican governor who is elected in a surprise because no one in Kentucky saw that coming, uh, in 1899. And in 1900, uh, the Democratic governor was assassinated at the uh, instigation, one assumes, of the Republican governor-elect, and Kentucky nearly fought a civil war. This is 1900. This is 10 years after. So we are bracketed by a Klan outrage and the murder of the governor, all happening in the in the area here around Louisville. Also in 1889, I found that uh, people – there was a Louisville merchant who was murdered uh, by tramps or thought to be murdered by tramps. Um, and they arrested a couple of tramps in the little town just south of Louisville. And the mob got to the town and said, bring us out the tramps. We're going to hang them. And the, basically the, the police chief or sheriff or whatever he was at the little town said, how about if I just give you one tramp? And they're like, all right, just cause we're like you. <laughs> so he gave <laughs> somewhat, them a tramp. Somewhat Solomonic he, of him. He thought was guiltier or didn't like as much or had given him lip. And so they took that tramp out and they strung up in the woods basically between that little town and Louisville. So you've already got a human sacrifice by hanging going on in 1889, uh, ready for your, for your witch things. And of course, what do witches do? They gather all the bits of a hanged man, uh, for their evil witchery. And so that's the sort of thing that, uh, they might've instigated or, or been part of, uh, Meanwhile, on the surface, you have the foundation of the women's suffrage movement in Louisville. Happens in 1889. They get their first electric streetcars. They're very proud of that. They open a giant auditorium, the largest outside uh, New York City. Um, and it opens with Edwin Booth, the brother of John Wilkes, performing in The Merchant of Venice. So that's some connection if you want to tie that into your clan or to... Uh, Shakespearean revenge, three witches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you could open it with Macbeth in your story if you'd rather. Um, or you can just say, oh, they probably went on to play Macbeth. Who need, who has time to look that up? And of course, the Louisville colonels in 1889 racked up the worst at that time and for some time to come record in baseball, losing 111 games. In 1890, they came back and won the championship. So... Obviously, if baseball is part of your magical ritual, uh, the natural style, then, uh, the Louisville Colonel's turnaround is also connected perhaps to this, uh, witch, uh, battle, this witch war. Do they have a bat carved from the maypole, perhaps? They may have a bat carved very much from the, 
from the Maple Maple, yes. Um, now, uh, we're leaving aside the uh, important codicil to this question, which is uh, not getting Andy tornadoed to death by witches. Well, first of all, I've met Andy. He's a tough guy. He's, you know, he's a soldier. He's served his country uh, in, in Afghanistan. I think he can take a few witches. I think he can take a tornado. Maybe not an F4. But I, I think we should, through, out of an abundance of caution... You know, he's he's a patron backer after all, so we don't want to. Yeah, you know. I guess you're right. So what I'm hearing from you is that there's a dark and sinister uh, patriarchal undercurrent to this uh, area, and that it could be. Guess what? The witches are the good guys. They're the ones who uh, oh. send you on your mission. Uh, the uh, the gnarledness of the tree is uh, because it is collecting the evil of the city. And, uh, uh, dispersing it all. And as long as they don't make the same mistake twice and cut it down again and cut down that tree and release all the evil and its attendant tornadoes, uh, everything is, is hunky dory. So that, uh, you are the, uh, hip, cool new generation of, uh, uh, 1890s witches who are going around, uh, solving mysteries and making things right. And of course, uh, paving the way for the suffragettes. And, uh, in fact, you probably are also the suffragettes. And so you are, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the craft, uh, with, uh, with Art Nouveau and Romanesque architecture. Yeah. Um, which, and a really creepy looking tree, which is, which is all well and good. Right. And whenever you, you know, you capture some of the evil that is, that is in men and, and, uh, and take it and put it in the tree where it's, uh, where it's safe. And so you have a, right. a, a, a coda at the end of each adventure where you, add more horror to the tree where it is carefully contained by the witches. I would also recommend, uh, whether you're making the uh, witches uh, good or uh, evil, um, uh, you might want to read the story of the ash tree by M.R. James, which is the classic story of a witch tree that is just jam-packed with evil. And so that would be another uh, useful thing to take on board for Andy. And frankly, everyone should read the ash tree by M.R. James because it's just that good. Um, but uh, yeah, Robin, I think that if you do a witch simp truckling type campaign where the witches are good. You're certainly keeping Andy safe from being tornadoed. If you do a proper cotton mathery, uh, new Englanders here to hunt the clan and the witches, I got silver in one gun and lead in the other. Uh, then, you know, he can take his chances. I think he's a, he's a, he's a bold man and one or two tornadoes will just go off his back like water off a duck. We, we provided the information. Uh, yes. uh, it's up to Andy what he does with it. Exactly. And on that note, uh, let's head to another segment. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. (laughs) 
It's time for that most shadowy and ill-defined of segments, the one of uh, of mystery and strangeness, where even the, the very outlines of the hut are fuzzy. But we know we're in the Elliptonia hut because look over there, there's the Nordic alien and the gray alien sitting down enjoying a kombucha. Out the window, we can see an alien big cat screaming on the moor. And at this time, what the alien big cat is screaming, I can't believe you had 282 episodes before you got to Spring Hill Jack. Why don't you tell us about Spring Hill Jack? And even though the alien big cat is not a Patreon backer. He's, he's very big. Yes. <laughs> we, we should obey its angry shrieks because yes. we are we are nothing if not cat obeyers. Right. Yeah. Uh, certainly in this house. Um, so, Ken... <laughs> Uh, give us the 101 on good old Spring Hill Jack, a, a supervillain of uh, the Victorian era. Uh, I guess we're in a real 19th century tip uh, today. This is actually the same year, practically, as, as the Boy Jones, because this is 1837 that uh, Spring Hill Jack sort of springs, as it were, onto the front pages. I'll, I'll sort of start with the general story as, you know, you will have picked it up uh, in the air, and then we'll sort of drill down. But the basic story is that along about the 1830s, uh, 1837, 1838, 1840, give or take, uh, there have been, a, there is a rash of sightings of a mysterious figure that attacks young women with its metal claws. It blows bluish fire at them and it jumps away, possibly on spring boots or possibly just because it has miraculous jumping powers. And it is known as Springheeled Jack. There were uh, uh, any number of ballads and plays. There was a, a long-running play about Springheeled Jack. He was on music hall stages. There were broadsheets about him. And, of course, he made it into the public prints. Um, uh, much he, public domain art. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, a great deal of that. Um, and this, by and large, is what happened. Um, it's just that what we assume to be the canonical spring Jack sighting is assembled from a number of different sightings, most of which involve, well, it was a ghost and then it turned into a bear. Uh, they're not actually <laughs> the sort of thing you think of as spring Jack. And in the very ghost what, bear the very is a first, totally different segment. One of the very first uh, spring Jack panics, uh, the constables investigated and they said, oh, you just saw a white cow. That's why you thought it was Spring Hill, Jack. It was a cow. Bailiffs were different those, in the 1830s. Those leap around a lot. They're an agile animal. Um, and, and so there's, there's a lot of sort of uh, weird post hoc mystification going on about Spring Hill, Jack, because people, uh, as is true in all folklore, take the fun part and they leave the boring part. Uh, there is a excellent, excellent essay on Spring Hill, Jack by a guy named Mike Dash. Uh, who basically sort of went and read all of the newspapers about Spring Hill Jack and assembled a pretty definitive chronology of Spring Hill Jack appearances. So he does not actually appear according to contemporary reports until 1837. And he appears sort of in a cloud of other ghost sightings, but somehow he is already known to be sort of agile because when his name is used as Spring Hill Jack later on that year and the next year, no one has to explain why he's spring Jack. That's just sort of what he's called. So one assumes that the first reports say that he's agile or that he, or that he, you know, goes over a fence or something like that. But, um, uh, the part where he starts leaping around seems to be much later in, uh, the sighting. Right. Uh, the, and there's a precursor figure or perhaps a completely different weird thing that, that was, uh, you know, coincidental in time, the Hammersmith ghost. Right, apparently yeah. in the early 1800s, there's just ghosts walking around London being ghosty. And yeah. then 
suddenly it, it all transmigrates into the Spring Hill Jack thing. Exactly. That, that someone is seeing white things that might be a cow or bear. They might have a glow <laughs> to them and they might or might not go up in the sky. And that sort of coalesces like a tulpa into Spring Hill Jack. And then the thing that's fun about Spring Hill Jack is that after that first range of sightings, he shows up again in uh, Aldershot and in Lincolnshire and in lots of other places in, in 1877. In Devon, he, he gets around. Yeah. And there are sort of, one hesitates to say reliable, but there are uh, cases of Spring Hill Jack uh, definitely in 1877 in Aldershot. And then he's reported again uh, in sort of similar fashion from Provincetown in Cape Cod, uh, where there's a leaping figure with pointed ears who spits blue flames. And he shows up in, in Provincetown, uh, not in uh, London or in Britain at all. He's in Massachusetts. So he sort of becomes a global phenomenon in some weird way. And people like to tie him into the mad gasser of Mattoon and, and UFO and, and reports. Unlike the young Jones, boats, obviously not an impediment. Not Do not stop him. Uh, there are uh, lots of very eager uh, folklorists. Uh, one hesitates to use the term fake lorists, although Mike Dash does <laughs> I, not hesitate to use that term. I think you might just have. <laughs> and uh, they tend to make up spring Jack stories that they think are cool. There was, for example, a real-life rumor, because the papers all refer archly to the rumor that spring Jack is the creation of a nobleman who does it as a bet. And he's like, I bet I can run around and panic women. And you wouldn't have thought you needed to bet on that, but I guess you were drunker and nobler back in the 1830s. And the uh, the name that was brooded about was the Marquis of Waterford. And so Peter Haining, beloved folklore scholar, Peter Haining, uh, decides to add a story of someone seeing a, a monogrammed W on a handkerchief dropped by Spring-Heeled Jack, which Haining just makes up out of thin air, apparently. But there you are. And it's the sort of thing that you can imagine someone having made up out of thin air in 1838 as well. Or, of course, if the Marquis of Waterford... by oversight, they didn't, so Peter Haining did. Yes, right. Or, it, you know, it's it's barely possible that Peter Haining read something in a in a broadsheet that escaped the uh, the gimlet eye of Mike Dash. But I think my money is on Peter Haining being a really good writer and not a really great researcher. So the specific identification of uh, Springheel Jack with the Marquis of Waterford is perhaps overblown. The argument, the Lord Mayor of London declared in a state of emergency and sent uh, uh, men out with guns to hunt Springheel Jack. No, what the Lord Mayor of London, he was interviewed about Springheel Jack by the newspapers, and he says, well, if he ever dares to set foot in London, I'm sure we'll see to him. Uh, Gotta go and talk about literally anything else besides this stupid <laughs> ghost story with you. Um, <laughs> and but But then that sort of, turns into a big deal about, uh, you know, the Duke of Wellington threatens to shoot Spring Hill Jack or whatever. But that's nonsense because right. Duke of Wellington knows better than that. Now, speaking of, of Jacks who were sometimes presumed to also be noblemen, Spring Hill Jack and the Jack the Ripper murders, uh, the, their mythology kind of crosses each other uh, over in one sort of, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper becomes a less cartoonish version of Spring Hill Jack. Yeah. And uh, there's other cases. There's a case in Peckham in 1872, which might be uh, our Spring Hill Jack, and in Liverpool in 1904. But again, those are very post hoc. Those are sort of, oh, I remember someone saying this, as opposed to going and digging through the newspapers and finding them. And um, uh, then he's been apparently seen in Liverpool in the 1970s. 
But uh, this is in the era where people just see things and make them up, and everyone already knows about Spring Hill Jack. So the well of that particular folkloric uh, stream is perhaps a little more um, uh, flavored than we like. He seems uh, of, of his time, and so it's uh, not surprising that good old uh, this sort of steampunky uh, metal claw kind of uh, bad guy has, uh, has has wandered off in favor of your Slendermans and your... Uh, Mothman's or your, your new Chicago, uh, phantom. So, mm-hmm. uh, he's sort of in that, uh, category, but, uh, he was very specific there for a while and it has now broadened out into a, uh, sort of back into a vaguer sort of, uh, a winged humanoid figure. Now, is there uh, a favorite pop culture version of him? There's a, a, uh, a movie that had him as sort of a, uh, Scarlet Pimpernel type spying for uh, spying against Napoleon, but I'm not seeing a lot of uh, other pop culture. Philip Pullman actually wrote a children's book. The beloved, uh, uh, everyone's favorite atheist, Philip Pullman, wrote a children's book called Spring Heeled Jack, in which Spring Heeled Jack helps lovable orphans fight off Mac the Knife. Um, and so, if you're gonna if you're gonna play mix master with pop culture. I think that's a pretty good setting, right? Mac the Knife versus Spring Hill Jack. And he helps the orphans escape to America, uh, because why not? Um, baby to Provincetown, who can say? But, uh, so that's kind of a fun one. It, it's very early Pullman and it's a children's book, so it's not, uh, super deep or anything, but it is, it's a fun artifact. I enjoy it. And, uh, certainly I think he's been underused as a, a sort of a steampunk, uh, uh, villain and uh you know there's there's crying out obviously for a Sherlock Holmes investigate Spring Hill Jack stories has has mm-hmm. that actually been left on the table all these years it's it does seem odd i guess it's because his period is not quite holmesian right because 1877 is pre holmes 1872 is pre holmes uh the peckham case which is actually i i rechecked it it's it's uh contemporary that's a real spring hill jack sighting straight up um the elder shot is m- much more likely a couple of guys on a rubber mask uh, screwing around. Um, but the, uh, but, but that's all before Holmes. Holmes is really big in the 1880s and 90s. And by then Spring Hill Jack is sort of, you know, uh, dissipated as you, as you will. Um, there's, uh, also a ska band called, uh, Spring Hill Jack. So if you're into that, um, uh, if you're into ska, Knock yourself out. Yes, he's he's got a checkerboard uh, pair of sneakers, and that's what gives him uh, his his lift. Uh, well, I think we've now finally uh, can say that we have uh, covered this electronic topic, uh, and uh, uh, we can therefore declare victory not only over this segment but the entire podcast. And therefore, we can leap away, leap the spitting away. flame as we go. Uh, but we'll be back with our iron claws uh, for another podcast in one mere week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pogren Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Escape the wrath of angry trees alongside such backers as... Darren Dumay. Paul S. Enns. Peter Nix. Tenet Reed. And Wesley Griffin. Ken and Robin Apparel and other Ariadite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Get ready for your next trip to 1763 with the Time Incorporated shirt. Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kennethite. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>